0: Those in the town were probably relieved from all the crowds and the noise that had happened on the Friday before when they crucified that carpenter. And as the dust settled in the town, probably like us today, they were just looking forward to a little emotional and physical relief. It was a good thing in many minds that the carpenter had been killed. It brought peace. It brought peace to the community. Lives were not disrupted any longer. He didn't go around putting his finger in people's faces any longer. And that it was crazy. Twelve that followed him around. They all ran away. That's probably a good thing. But then, of course, the rumors started on that morning. He's alive, he has risen. I can't believe it. He said he would do that, but he did it. What kind of man says that he's going to die and, and on the third day be risen again by his own power and does it? Maybe it was a morning just like this morning. Maybe it was people just like you and me. that are confronted with that truth he's alive and now what are you going to do about it for the Corinthian church it didn't take them long maybe 60, 70 years to forget the truth that he had risen from the grave they had begun to narrow him down to a set of principles, a good moral teacher, and maybe some spiritual nebulous thing that we might obtain one day. And there was no need necessarily for there to be an actual empty grave in Jerusalem any longer. They began to rationalize and and, and intellectualize and do all sorts of things to try to explain away this amazing reality that there was a man who was crucified, hung there for seven hours, jabbed in the side with a spear, was taken down by a Roman guard, pronounced dead, put in a grave, and then the grave is now empty. And 500 people saw him come out of that grave. And they were trying to... Think of a different way to deal with this risen man. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. Living Christ, we come before you today to hear you. May you send us, Lord, for those who do not know you, would you send us the Holy Spirit into their hearts, that they might hear your voice this morning. And for those of us who follow you, Jesus, and claim you as our Lord, would you revive and renew our astonishment that you live. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Paul comes to the Corinthian church to address... This forgetfulness. And in the 15th chapter, and starting with the first verse, he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which would be Peter, and to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles and last of all to me, one who was untimely born. He appeared also, I'm sorry, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it's not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then I was or they, so we preach and so we believe. Would you pray with me? Lord, may we know you and you crucified, but also you risen in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So there's a commercial on TV of late. It's sort of a rerun of a commercial that was out about ten years ago. Um, where you see a dog that's half shaved that's gone to the groomer and the dog has got like half its body shaved and the other half's furry. Or the guy goes to the pizza place and pays for a full pizza and he opens up the box and he finds only a half of it there. Or another person who goes into the car dealership and buys a car and yet they're delivered only a half a car. Have any of you seen this commercial? Well, it's it's out there and what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that the gospel without the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is much like that commercial. It's just no good to you. It's not the full story. In fact, he goes so far in these scriptures to tell us that if there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you and I believe in vain. We are to be the most pitied of all. But if there is, and there is, it changes everything. That's what we must see this morning, not just another explanation of different reasons why these events are true. I don't want to go into all the evidences of why He's there, but I want you and I this morning to ponder the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the reality of the implications of His resurrection on our lives. Why is it so essential? Why is the resurrection so essential to the gospel? Why does Paul say that without the resurrection, there is no salvation? And why, if, why would our faith be in vain? What does it mean if that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem? What does it mean for you and I to sit here in East Glenville this morning in upstate New York and living in the reality that there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Not just any old empty tomb, not just one where raiders came and took something out of it. But I mean an empty tomb where someone took their own life up and walked out of it. What are the implications of that in what you and I believe and how you and I behave? And where do we go from here? There is no gospel in this reality of the resurrection without a bodily resurrection. Let me give you just three things to think about this morning on that. First of all, it's a heavenly revelation. It's not a human conjecture. What I received, Paul says, I passed on to you. What I received, I passed on to you. Paul's saying to you and I this morning, what he got, he got from heaven. What he got, he got firsthand. What he saw, he saw with his own eyes. On that road to Damascus, his eyes were blinded by the glory of the living Christ who came to him and said, Paul, Paul, or I'm sorry at that point, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you killing my people? And I would take note how Christ... Con, con, uh, connects himself not just to the church, but to his people. And when he speaks to Saul, who is attacking his people, Jesus says, You're attacking me, Saul. There's no distinction between Jesus and his people in the heart of Jesus. You see, what Jesus says to Paul is, Paul, my church is my bride. My church is my body. Your attack on that is your attack upon me. And Saul, in the glory of Christ, finds himself face down in the dirt, blinded by his glory and changed by the reality of a resurrected Christ. And Paul says, I receive from him. What I now give to you. How many of you have witnessed something and then had to explain what it was that you saw? And you realize that you try to give it in the greatest detail that you can. You try to dot all your I's and cross all your T's so that the person that you are communicating with can have the same experience that you had. It's exactly what Paul is doing to the Corinthian church. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, I'm giving to you what I saw. I'm giving to you what I received. It's very important that you understand. I didn't make this up in my own head. This is a heavenly revelation, not a human conjecture. Conjecture. And I want you, too, to notice the primacy of the message. He says it's of first importance. It's the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 3 with me. For I delivered to you of first importance what I received. In all of the things of Christendom, in all of the things that you and I believe as Christians, in everything that we do, it's not the egg hunts. It's not the brunch or the lunch. It's not the breakfast. It's not the, all the groups that we have. All those things are great. All those things are fun. All those things are nice and important. But of first importance is this, that you have a risen king that reigns over the universe. And Paul says that's the number one thing about Christianity that Jesus rose from the grave and proved once and for all that he is the great I am. That he's the Alpha and the Omega of Revelation, and he is the I am of Exodus. That he did give his life, and yet he took it back up again. It's the first part of the gospel. It's the death of Jesus according to the scriptures. We hearken back to Isaiah in the Old Testament, the 53rd chapter, where it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. That God had planned that his son would come and that he would die for our sins. It wasn't a news flash to the history of heaven. There was no news going on in the celestial networks up, up in the glorious glories that, oh look, God has sent his son. It was well known within the, the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that at a particular time, a time such as this, Dateline Jerusalem, that Jesus would come and die for God's people, that God's people may live with them Him forever and ever. I tell you the truth, even this morning as you're hearing my voice, hear the voice of God say to you, God has come at this particular time, at this very place, at this point where you are in this pew, to speak to you, to say, you are His. And He reigns for you. His rising from the grave was on your behalf as much as anybody else's. It's of first importance. Second, were raised on the third day, according again to the Scriptures, that the Father would raise the Son for the throne of David, that His promise to David would be fulfilled, that there would be one who sat on the throne of David forever and forever, the greater David, the greater King, the true Son of God, that in Him all of God's people would be blessed. And then also by connecting his death to the resurrection, Paul excludes any other gospel. There's a time when C.S. Lewis was speaking to, uh, or a bunch of C.S. Lewis friends were speaking about what made Christianity so different. C.S. Lewis walked into the room, they'd been discussing this for hours, walked in the room and he went by the name Jack. And he said, Jack, what makes Christianity so different? Real quickly, he just said, simple, Grace. What? Yeah. The heart of the Gospel is this, that it's not man achieving God, but it's God who came as man that we might achieve being with Him forever. It is the only faith, it's the only truth where God does not require the sacrifice of, his, of your children, but has given you the sacrifice of His child. It's what distinguishes Christianity from everything else in the world. That God would come and that he would sacrifice Jesus for you and you and you. So that you might be cleansed and made holy forever and ever to live with Him forever and ever. And it's not just that He was He rose again from the dead. But he was also seen, look in verse 5, it says he appeared. He didn't just appear only to the twelve. He appeared to Peter. Why Peter? Why Peter first? Cephas, if you're in some translations. Well, of course he comes to Peter first. Peter was the one who had really messed up. Peter was the one who had denied him. Peter was the one who turned his back on him in his greatest hour. And Peter was also the one that promised that he would never turn his back. Peter had lied. Peter had ran. Peter had done everything he could to get as far away from Jesus as he could possibly get from Jesus. How appropriate that Peter would be the first one that Jesus would come to. To minister to. To say, Peter, I know what you've done. I know who you are. I know everything about you. I'm here, child, to love you. Isn't that good news for you this morning? It sure is for me. That I have a Jesus who rose from the grave and appears to me and says to me, Brad, I know where you've messed up. I know where you've fallen short. I know where you've denied me. I know where you've sought other loves more than you've sought me. I know where you've had idolatry. I know all the places of your heart. And I'm here today to tell you, I still love you. You're still mine. So how appropriate that our Lord, our Master, our Shepherd would come, not with words of condemnation for Peter, but words of restoration. Words of restoring a relationship. Words of grace. Don't you hear the Spirit calling to you? Even this morning to those of you who have been far away, that Jesus is saying, I'm here. I rose for you. I love you. I want to minister to you. He comes to Peter first because Peter's in failure. Christ is eager to restore and minister to him. And then to the apostles the foundation of the church. It's on their teachings, the witnesses of this amazing love of Jesus, who even though they deserted Him, even though they ran away, even though they cast stones at Him, some called Him crazy. Even in the midst of all of that, He comes and He returns and He makes an appearance to them to tell them one thing and one thing only. I'm the Lord and I as the Lord love you. He appears to James who ends up, we understand, as a half-brother, a son of Mary and Joseph of flesh, who at one, at one time called him insane. He claims to be God. He, remember, his brothers and his sisters abandoned him while he was on earth, said that he had a demon. And yet, here we have James, who later would call him the glorious Lord, because he was a witness to the resurrection of his own brother. We look at these twelve, we we look at their lives, we look what happened to them. All of them, with the exception of the apostle John, martyred, killed for the sake of the gospel, willingly dying for the sake of the gospel. Doesn't it beg the question, why would a bunch of men do that if it weren't true? They tried to kill John. They tried to boil him. He was too cool for the hot water. They ended up having to put him on an island somewhere. Why? Because God had plans for him to have the revelation of heaven too, that you and I might see how the story ends, that the resurrected king returns and abolishes death forever and forever, that we might live with him forever and ever. You see, the reality of the resurrection is the most important thing of all in the gospel. It's why Paul said, by Christ, by grace, I live who I am, what I am, but in the truth that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And because of that, everything changes. What are the implications of this? It's the reality of our own resurrection, if you'll skip down with me to verse twenty. But in fact, if Christ has been risen from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by as one man came death, speaking of Adam there, our first father, by one man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, we have this problem of, of death. Some of you are very handsome people. Some of you are very pretty people. You look in the mirror and you think it will always be this way. (laughs) We have a serious problem. We're dying. It's evidenced in the mirror every day. Our hormones are going crazy. Hair is growing from places we never thought it would. If you're like Lee and I, you spontaneously fall. It's going to happen to every single one of us in this room, save the Lord return. And there is no hope. You can't stop it. You can go to a plastic surgeon and delay it. But I'm going to tell you something, ten years later, it's going to be even worse. Don't waste your money. But it's happening to every one of us. It's because we came from our father, Adam, who sinned against the Lord and brought death upon all of us as his descendants. But there's hope. There's a greater truth. What Paul says here, there's a better Adam There's the real Adam, the true Son of God. And by your faith in Him, genetically you are transformed in a spiritual way to look just like Him, to be like Him, and to live like Him forever and ever as a blessing for Him being obedient, even to death on a cross, that His sacrifice before the Lord for your sins and for my sins was accepted and He was risen and lives as the King of all the living. That does deserve an amen. I know you're northern, but try hard. See what Paul says to you and me? Everything's different. Everything's different if he's alive says He was the first to be rise. What does that mean? Is that Leviticus? It means that He's the first. He represents all of mankind that believes in Him. comes out of Leviticus 23 about the harvest, that the priest, the people of Israel would bring in the first fruits of the harvest and the rest of the harvest would follow. You see, Jesus is the first fruit of those who have died to bring in all of us who would believe by faith in Him as the rest of the harvest before the Lord, that you and I are truly the harvest of God's grace. To live with Him forever. Evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus. It is meant to be God's blessing on the rest of the harvest. It means this. That the curse has been reversed. That that which brought death in the garden in the garden of gethsemane and on the on the golgotha hill that curse was reversed and life became our blessing that in jesus you may have eternal life that in jesus you may have assurance that the king will return that in jesus he reigns on his throne right now over everything that's happening you can say, Pastor, there's a lot of bad things happening. How could he have rain? I promise you, he's in control of everything. He is storing up his wrath against evil, and he is storing up the blessing of grace for his people. And the day is going to come when his wrath will come, and he will destroy this earth by fire with all of its systems. With all of its ways, with all of its wisdom, it's going to pass. It's going to go away. And the only thing that will last is that which is of Christ. How do we know that that's true? Why would a man like me give his life and his life work to something like that if it were not true? Because I have one dilemma and a big one. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. I'll tell you that if they ever find a body that belongs to Jesus and can prove it, my life has been in vain. Amen, Phil. We learned that in seminary. But I tell you today, I stand before you as one of what I have received. I have received the living Christ, I know him. And I give to you this morning that there's an empty tomb. And God is calling to you, come and believe. So let's talk about just so what. What do we take from here this morning? Since the resurrection is real, you and I must respond. You may say, well, how do I respond? What do I do? You either step forward in the grace of God and say, Lord, show me I believe lead me, I want to be in Your Word, I want to live like You want me to live, or you find yourself in separation from Him. It's not a hard choice. It is the insanity of sin, the insaneness of God stands before you today and offers you death or life. Some of you will continue to choose death. But the Lord this morning offers before you life. You must respond to that. It's the most interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus is the only one you must deal with. He's the only man in history you've, either, you've got to look at and you've got to decide Lord, lunatic or liar? Because he's the only one that came up out of the grave. And you must decide, you must respond. And like anything else, no choice is a choice. No response is a response. Then how must we respond? We respond in faith to the grace of God who offers us life. Secondly, we must look at these realities and move courageously through life because we know that Christ has conquered death for us. So we sing, we proclaim with the Scriptures, O death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? How many of us have loved ones who are in heaven right now this day? And we wonder, do they know? Can we know them again? And the truth is absolutely yes. They stand before a glorious throne having no idea how to explain to you and me the glory that they see. There's no words for the beauty that they behold. And will you see them? Yes, you will see them. We will reunite. We will be around the table of Christ. On Monday, Thursday, we talked shortly about how the Lord was eager to have the Last Supper that night with His disciples and said, I will not eat of this again until I return. Don't you see what He's saying? He wants the whole family together the next time we have that meal. We're going to be together and the Lord is going to serve us a great banquet because there's an empty tomb. Then lastly, we can live with the assurance that our King loves us. How, by all that He has done for us. You can have assurance that the King loves you because He came for you. He died a death for you that you might live forever. You say, yes, I've seen people die. I see their bodies waste away. We put them in a box and we get them in the ground or we, we fire them up. That's not the person. They're not of flesh. If you believe in Jesus and if you're of Jesus, you are no longer of the flesh. You're of spirit. And the spirit returns to which it came the spirit of God. And at the return of Christ, your body will be like the body that Christ had when he returned. You'll be able to eat fish and walk through doors. It's true. It's the reality of a resurrected Lord. It's the reality of His resurrection. And the reality of Easter today. So much so that people have changed their entire lives for it. John G. Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, which was filled with cannibals, was about to go on his trip there, and his friend said, John, John, the cannibals, they may take you. John said this, he said, whether death takes over me by old age, or whether people devour my body, or whether the worms get me, I know that my body will be resurrected with Jesus in a glorious way just like yours. You see, all fear was gone about his flesh. It was a man who truly lived knowing that there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And that the king had risen and deserved to be crowned with many crimes. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that this Easter celebration would be like no other in our life that, O God, Your Spirit would move within us and open the scales of our eyes that we might see, Jesus. We pray, O God, that our ears would be open that we might hear the Gospel. We pray, O Lord, that grace would invade our hearts and that mercy would flow forth from our hands. And, Lord, I pray for those even this morning that have never made a decision for You, that they hear Your voice this morning and realize that You have decided for them. And that is it is your hand that reaches them, even in this moment, to touch them and to transform them from death into life, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done. Like Peter, you come to them to give them restoration. And for those of us, Lord, who belong to you, ignite our hearts with the passion of your resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen.